to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. On November 16th and 17th, 2022, James Green and I co-hosted a live broadcast of Preparing for the Unexpected from the Continuity and Resilience Today conference in Toronto. These are two interview segments we did during that live broadcast. Segment one is with Sakiva Culleton, and the second is with the familiar name you might recognize, Regina Phelps. Enjoy. We have a special guest with us right now. Uh, Alex, someone who I've spent many times, we spoke on the phone and through Zoom prior to COVID for years. She was actually at Continuity Insights. You were. And we missed it. And I missed you. (laughs) I should have punted you down. (laughs) Please, Keith, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, So my name is Keith Cullerton. Um, I'm located in Ireland, hence the accent. And I work for HPE, Hewlett Packard Enterprises. And I am the Global Business Continuity Program Manager for HPE. Yeah. And she's also the delivery of chocolates. <laughs> so if you're wondering if we can be bribed with yeah. food, the answer is yes. Yes, we can. We have some amazing shamrock-shaped chocolates. Thank you so much. So you've been speaking, at a, I've noticed you speaking at a lot of conferences lately. Mm-hmm. So share with us like what, what your, your year has been as we, I don't know if we're at the tail end of COVID. I don't know if COVID ever ends. Yeah. But not being able to travel now, now traveling, now speaking at conferences. Like, what have you, what have you seen at at Continuity and Resilience today, and some of the other conferences that you spoke at? Mm. Well, um, from a personal preference point, I love face to face. Um, I think it can't beat the, the human interaction, even the socializing of, you know, introduced to different people, different industries. It's a big learning. So I suppose that was the piece that we were robbed of during COVID. Yes. You know, we, we had a lot of virtual events and a lot of really good virtual events that I attended. But at the same time, it, it didn't have, I guess, the same impact even for me um, sitting at my desk where an email might come in and you'd to start, you know, responding. Whereas these kind of events, I think, are just amazing for, for networking and, and just seeing how other people approach things as well. Um, you know, I always learn something uh, everywhere I go, and that, that's the one thing that I really, really enjoy, I have Cons- to say. Considering everywhere you go and you're from Ireland, yeah. have you noticed any difference in attitudes or behavior with regards to like where we are right now in the world with COVID? You know, back home in Ireland and coming here to Canada, any, any differences mm. that you've noticed? Probably in April when I traveled to Kentucky, I would have noticed it a little bit more in that things were relaxing, I think, more quickly in the U.S. Yes. than they were in Europe. That, that was really where I saw it. So say, for example, there's, there's not very many people around today wearing masks 
mm-hmm. you know, whereas in Kentucky, you probably okay. noticed maybe a few more. Yes. But anything like I, I attended in Ireland, I would have saw a lot more masks, a lot, you know, and mm. um, certainly no shaking of hands or, or anything like that. So that, that definitely has relaxed a little bit more. And definitely travel is on the up again. People are beginning to get back out there. And I think they're aware, they have that awareness that COVID is still there. It's, it's not gone, but we're living with it. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's really what I would have seen. Um, but a huge amount of learnings from a business continuity perspective and a resilience perspective. Huge. Absolutely. So what are, what are you speaking? What's your topic? What are you presenting on? So uh, at um, I hope someone comes. <laughs> Please do come. Um, so tomorrow I have a slot and that's the problem. I'm on the graveyard shift straight after Uh-oh. lunch. That's oh. never good. And I only have the one box of chocolates as well, so that's not good. <laughs> and you can't, and you can't, <laughs> I can't take them. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, so I'm going to talk tomorrow about uh, Texas, the snow in Texas in 2021. Okay. Um, so we had just moved our headquarters, HPE had just moved our headquarters, had announced it in December that we were moving our headquarters from California to Texas. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we had quite, we had nine sites already in Texas. Anyway, so we have quite a concentration in Texas. So I'm going to speak about, you know, on top of COVID, how we dealt with that that event in Texas, because it did have a number of impacts and presented a number of learnings for us as an organization. But that was the thing over the last two years was the amount of times you had a multiple disruptive event. Because do you ever notice that a lot of people have the mindset that if you're dealing with one disruptive event in your organization, for example, COVID or even a a weather event. So when you're a global organization, people forget that you could have multiple events happening globally that are impacting the same groups of people, the same functions. So, you know, you're standing up this response all the time. You know, I think people are waking up to to realize that, you know, earthquakes and COVID, forest fires. Well, yeah. and COVID, but and other ransomware and, and, and ransomware and and rest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we've rest. certainly seen the last oh, few yeah. years that if your business continuity or resilience strategy is focused on this building flooding and that's it, that yeah. doesn't work anymore. No, because no. everything that's happened the last three years has been something and a global pandemic at the very least. Yeah. So, like you said, you you're moving your your organization. You moved headquarters, which is always a, a vulnerable time for people in process. Yeah. And then you had a global pandemic, and then yeah. you also had snowstorms in Texas. Yeah. So, who's writing a plan for four disruptive concurrent events yeah. all at the same time, mm. and, and, the and still occurring? Uh, yeah, That's on it. some oh, level, yeah. they're still occurring, oh, or absolutely. something new. Yeah, all the time. And I think it's the pliability of the BC plan has been the relearning for us in the last three years. And so, so many people look to the plan and they say, oh, yeah, we've planned for people unavailable. And then something happens and they don't seem to have, I guess, initiative or, you know, they, they want the exact event to be documented. Correct. And, and that's something that I really notice, um, that pliability that the plan needs to apply to a number of different events and that people need to kind of, I suppose, use their minds as well when they're but, dealing with it. But maybe that's some of uh, our fault too, because that's the traditional thinking and that's the way we yeah. started to really develop our industry. Do you yeah. have a plan for X? Do you have a yeah. plan for yeah. Y? But as time has gone through and, yeah. and we've experienced new things, we realize that's really not the best way to look at it. Exactly. 
Exactly. And that, you know, within our plans, we've always talked about impact scenarios of people unavailable, technology unavailable, process unavailable. And what we didn't kind of talk about, even in terms of our training, was when the people are unavailable and the technology is unavailable or, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, That pliability Mm. is definitely something that I think going forward we have to get better at. Well, there's a word that uh, last year and the year before seemed to be dominating every discussion, and it's not resilience. It's agile. And yet this year, I'm not hearing that word very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what, are you, what are your thoughts on you know, being agile in, in our responses and our planning and things like that? For me, I think because I eat, drink, and sleep this, okay? I'm, I'm always agile, right? As you, <laughs> as you guys probably are as well, okay? Because we're thinking about all the scenarios all the time. But definitely within our organizations, the man on the ground, the people in the grass, I think that agility is more and more important. And, and that's the bit, I suppose, that will keep me up at night is everybody understanding that we can be agile. You know, we, we, can, we can meet the requirements of a different disruption, but we do need to allow for the fact that we have to talk about it and plan for it as well. So that awareness, but but definitely, I think for me, that agility is still very much there. And I think even now, if you think about Europe, you know, and the energy crisis, we don't know what's coming at us. It's been a mild winter so far, but not like here where it's snowing. Uh, you Welcome know, I, to I, yeah, I came from heat and warmth in Ireland. Um, but you know, as we head up into Christmas and beyond Christmas, and we think, you know, what's that going to bring for us? And once again, that agility is called upon. I think. Yeah, talk to us a little bit about that because Alex and I have talked quite extensively about what could possibly happen in Europe with the energy crisis. But we're both in North America, so kind of on the outside looking in share with us i'd love to hear your views being in europe looking at these potential implications like what are some of the things that you're you're working with with your organization or things that you're you know through mm. your minds? yeah so i suppose the first challenge with europe is that it's individual countries yeah okay so like we you know when you think about north america you can take kind of a an overall view of it whereas or canada but when you think about europe you're dealing with all those individual uh countries and not only that if you think about the eastern europe countries the government actually controls when the heat turns on in those countries and from from previous uh governments okay so all of those things Will, will impact, you know, how really how it unfolds if if it unfolds. So yeah. at the moment, say the EU are managing the supply and they're saying, you know, we should be okay, but we, we we just don't know what will come again. And then in terms of how that will impact our team members in their homes and their personal lives, and um, you know, our offices are all open. But I did read uh, in Germany where they're saying that some offices may have to reduce their hours. Okay. Um, so that would be an impact. Rolling blackouts have been suggested in the UK. So um, as an organization with the presence in all of those countries, the challenge is staying on top of what's happening within those countries and then thinking about our team members and then also our processes that may be impacted, including our external dependencies such as supply chain or suppliers. You know, it's, it's more and more difficult to manage what their response would be as well. So it's, um, and, and I guess you've got to be uh, in that situation because you just gave some interesting uh, situations and responses. Is 
immediate response. You, you've got to be able to flip on a dime, as, as the, the saying goes, because yeah. anything can happen almost any given day. And we're seeing all kinds of comments that come, come out in the news, you know, shut this valve off, turn yeah. this one on, and you know, yeah. reduce this. So it, it's got to be a review constant of what your response is going to be. Well, that's it. And the other thing that you have to remember at all times as well is for a business like us that are quarter-driven, you know, you're constantly monitoring as you're coming towards the end of the quarter. So October is our quarter end. It's our financial year end. So as we were heading into October, we were going, God, I hope it doesn't get cold. I hope, <laughs> I hope there's no impact to our team members, you, you know, at this time. Because this wouldn't be a good time to say you don't need to work three days, you know, two days of the week or something. So, you know, so it is, it's, it's definitely, it's a very volatile environment at the moment, you know. And does that impact your uh, employees as well? Not just the, the offices, but with so many people working from home, do, are they having that concern as well? Definitely, and the rising costs. So the cost of living at the moment is definitely a challenge for, for team members, uh, you know, across, I suppose, across the world, really. Yeah. But in, in Europe at the moment, you know, you have inflation rising quite rapidly. Uh, and then, you know, the cost of heat and fuel, etc., to drive to the office. Do you see that as a potential business continuity risk for your employees as, like, if employees can't afford to live in certain areas, yeah. people have to move? Is that, yeah. is that a risk that you look at or something that... You know, maybe keeps you up at night. Keeps you up at night. I suppose you, the duty of care of our employees is always important, of our yeah. team members, okay? And that, that is a real priority for HPE. And, you know, we would have seen that very much with weather events in the U.S. You know, we would reach yeah. out to our employees and make sure they're okay. Um, so it will be, apply the same to Europe. And um, that, um, you know, transient team members wouldn't quite be as relevant in Europe because people don't move around as much um, as they maybe would here. Um, so it would be more about, I know we, we spoke recently about, you know, say younger team members that maybe live in rented accommodation. Yeah. You, you know, we would have to have an awareness of them. So we're very dependent on those country managers to understand what are the challenges of our team members. But it, it would be very much top of mind for the organization. So, you know, one question we get a lot from the audience, uh, people who run business continuity and resilience at smaller organizations. How do I get a seat at the table? What do I, what do I share with management that they're going to be interested in? We know that you running and, and being part of business continuity for a global organization, that's very important to management. So what are, the, what are some of the conversations or some of the questions that they're asking that you think might be relevant for our audience that they should be asking when they work with their management on their, their programs? Mm. So um, I suppose when we talk about COVID, COVID was our friend. We suddenly became so relevant. Very popular, <laughs> right? Very popular. Before that, we were kind of the people, oh my God, here they come again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's tick that box once a year, but, you know, we might do a desktop exercise. So I suppose the, you know, the, the benefit to the organization of having plans, you know, during that time was was tremendous and, and I know you know the management in our organization really valued the planning that we had in place and um, I, I suppose really one of the things that I think is fundamental to any program and the success of it is communication yes. so you know to get that seat at the table but also 
you know, we have a responsibility to remind our management, our leaders, that we're here, we're planning, we're doing, this is the output, this is what we're seeing, you know, these are our concerns in terms of the risk environment, the risk landscape, you, you know, and I think it's that constant communication is really, really important to ensure that you have that engagement um, all the time. I think if you don't become, I suppose, somewhat aggressive about it, you will get forgotten about, you know, until there is a disruption. And they go, who has the plan and where is it? Uh, you know, so I, I think that's really important, to be honest, regardless of the size of the organization. Is there a political fight, though, to have? Because let's face it, you can be aggressive and still have, you know, your manager or your director or whoever you report to, no, 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 you know. Let's not open that can of worms. Can of worms, yeah. So how how can you be aggressive and, and try to get your point across when you know there are people who don't want you to get your point across? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we have a number of partners within the organisation, and um, you know they're very helpful to us. So so first of all, my my manager, she's a director, so she has a seat at the audit committee, which is a great opportunity to highlight concerns um, and also our, our colleagues in enterprise risk. So we use some of those stakeholders across the organization to help us when we might be getting that traction. Um, you know, and ultimately, I do believe if you can align a dollar value of a potential disruption, it, it tends to get people to sit up a little bit more and say, whoa, um, you know, and that sometimes can be a little bit of a finger in the air moment, but at the same time, it definitely does get the attention that you require. I, I like what you said about uh, partnering with some of those groups like Enterprise Risk, yeah. you know, leveraging some of, the, you know, some of the network that you might have, yeah, leverage that to, to, to move your, your, your needs forward. That's because ultimately exactly. your needs are the organizations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because what you're trying to achieve all the time is protect the organization. You know, and sometimes it might be on everybody's agenda. So using those part groups, you know, can really, really help that. Yeah. Okay, so we know we're cutting into your lunch hour, so we want to let you go. <laughs> yeah. But you have today. chocolates. We now have chocolates. <laughs> we have chocolates to get us through. Thank you so much for joining us. What time is your speech tomorrow? 20 past one. Okay, so if you're at the conference, 20 past one, don't eat too yeah. much lunch. Don't no, eat no. too much bread. Don't go sleep. Stay awake. Uh, you can fall asleep after her session. Yeah, exactly. But please, please join us for that one. Thank you so Thank much you. for joining Thank us. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so Thank much. You. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Not enough women are talking about money. Lisa Chastain is aiming to change that. If you are feeling uncertain with your financial decisions, join us on Real Money, Mondays at 10 a.m. on the Voice America Business Channel, where you will learn how to become more capable with your financial choices. Listen in and hear stories from other women on how they tackled their financial challenges. You will learn from leading industry experts all the tips, tricks, and advice that you need to establish financial confidence and freedom. Listen in Mondays on Real Money with Lisa Chastain. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio. 
and see what we're cooking up for you. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Say It Skillfully is my radio show about being who you are and saying what you think needs to be said. This is your host, Molly Chang. I'll help you find the right words to tackle any challenging conversation you've been avoiding. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. You'll learn how to achieve success on your terms and be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in your life. Check out sayitskillfully.com for practical resources, including my 90-second videos, real-life examples showing you how to speak up skillfully. I invite you to call in with your questions. Join me live every Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. And no, I'm cheering for you. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to our... I forgot. Five. (laughs) 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 We were just talking about how tired uh, James and I are getting. So welcome back to our five. And uh, this hour is brought to us by uh, Resilience Think Tank. Yeah, the Resilience Think Tank is dedicated to providing independent guidance and research to the risk and resilience industry. Thank you for sponsoring this hour. I'm James Green. This is Alex Follick. And we have a special guest. Regina Phelps. Longtime friend of the Preparing for the Unexpected podcast. Yes. Actually, before we get started, because I've always wanted to get the two of you together. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh, I'm just, worried now. Now <laughs> we're in trouble. Hold the mic. <laughs> I wanted to personally thank both of you, because you are the two people who have been on the show more than anybody else. Awesome. Sharing, sharing your ideas and your thoughts, and I've enjoyed every single conversation we've had. And it's a pleasure having you, you as that? friends and colleagues. Well, Thank you end, so much. At the end, uh, that's very kind of you, Alex. I think at the end, we ask him who he likes better. Okay, that's a great idea. Okay. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, there we go. Is that All right. I- so, uh, Regina, what brings you to lovely, snowy Toronto? First of all, James, it's freezing outside. <laughs> 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 Let me just say that straight all away. Right. 
Uh, but it wasn't the cold that brought me here. It was the conference. And today, I, I was actually speaking yesterday. Yes. I did a two-hour ransomware exercise. Like 8 in the morning, right? At 8 in the morning. Tough, 8 to, eight to 10.30. Long. Okay. And then I did an, a, a speech last afternoon. Yes, last night. Last uh, Yesterday afternoon. And it essentially was on the lessons learned from the pandemic. Now, talk to us about the ransomware exercise, because you're primarily known as an expert in pandemic and COVID. So I always love it when you talk about other things. So what were some of the themes of uh, the exercise you did yesterday? It's a great question. So even though I am known for my COVIDness, yes. I guess you could say, uh, <laughs> of my 40 years of practice, I've only done that for 27 years. I've actually been designing exercises for 40. Uh, what I focused on primarily is designing a really interactive exercise to really demonstrate um, the capabilities or lack thereof of a crisis management response to a ransomware attack. And in our client population, we've had, oh my gosh, so many large global companies that we work for that have had catastrophic attacks. Yeah. And so essentially what I've learned is that you can design, you can really help a company by having a really highly interactive, highly designed exercise. But the secret sauce to my exercise, you're going to laugh because you already know this, is that, <laughs> is that at the end of the exercise, I want everybody to cry. <laughs> wow. All right. Now, I was not expecting those words to come out of your mouth. Well, you know, every, when you design an exercise, I mean, I've designed almost 5,000 exercises in my career. You always want people to leave feeling, you know, oh, you know, it was really hard, but we managed and it was great. But in a cyber exercise, you do not want to do that because okay. you don't want executives in particular to walk out of that room thinking like, okay, that was really hard, but it wasn't that bad because it can be that bad. And you need really people to be prepared for the fact that it can be awful. And so that's my motto in ransomware exercises is to make them cry. I think that should be one of your tag. <laughs> My tag line. Like Regina Phelps will make them cry. <laughs> Makes them cry. That's it. So what's a, you, like you said, you do a lot of exercises. You do a lot of ransomware exercises. Is there a theme, like what's the biggest surprise that you see executives and organizations have when they walk through a ransomware scenario? I think for the most part, many executives believe because there's a plan because there are processes and there might be exercises on the technology side they believe first of all that if it occurs to them it will be a rapid recovery and then secondarily they believe that their backups will save them and in both cases they're wrong that's not the case i was working with an organization earlier in the year where they had full replication which they thought was great. But the problem is when they got ransomware on all their primary servers and data, since it was automatically replicated, right. their backups was, were... Yeah. Right, no air gapping. Yeah. Well, the other thing too is that many times people actually have these, even if they've got some air gapping and they've got some protection, they think, many times if a perpetrator has been in your systems for months, months watching they yeah. have encrypted uh, they have all of the encryption ready to go in all of those backups and all they have to do is just say now that happens and then they launch the attack so you have to be incredibly careful and so i think that's why executives believe it won't be that bad but if i make them cry I've learned that all of a sudden that it changes. And then they'll say to, the, to their 
CISO and others, could this really happen? And of course, they're going to look at them and say yes. I think that would be a great interview if afterwards we could interview a crying executive <laughs> immediately yeah. in real time. They're the, yes. they're the ones who walk out of the room completely pale, you right. know, just right. um, what have I just experienced? Right. And yeah. so when I talk about that, when I talk about ransomware, um, besides the crying part, I always say that it's really important that you have a uh, design process that probably is going to last at least 100 days it's from beginning to end, and that you have a design team that's comprised of technology professionals who figure out all of the issues, and then you have a business unit team that actually designs the injects that speak about the impact to the business. And then the second part of that that we do is that because rep and brand is the biggest concern of any executive, we always out them, not really, but we out them in the exercise. And so my, I, in my company, I've got an AB group that actually designs Twitter uh, posts and professionally done news broadcasts that makes it look like the local news station is coming for you and then next it's going to be Bloomberg that's talking about you. Nice. Yeah, so that makes them really cry. Out of all the exercises that you've done, was there anything that, especially these ransomware ones, was there anything that even surprised you? I'm still sorry. I think the biggest thing is I'm surprised that people are so naive to think that because they have backups, they're going to be fine. And that's, really? I mean, that's really a consistent mm -hmm. thing. And I think what, I mean, I've sat through board meetings of some of my clients with presentations, and what happens is that in these big corporate boards, they will not know even what questions to ask, so they'll say to the executive, do we have uh, exercises? Yes, we have exercises. Do we have backups? Yes. But they never ask the next question, which is, well, could they fail, or what would happen if they failed? And so part of it is, is that the people that are managing the executives, if you will, on the board level, don't even know those types of questions. So nobody is drilling into that. What about, I want to get your thoughts on one of the polarizing, most polarizing aspects of ransomware is paying ransomware. Right. And I know the FBI in the United States, their official position is never pay ransomware, but studies and anecdotally have shown that companies are paying ransomware because if there wasn't money in it these crime rings and these threat actors wouldn't right. continue to make more right. efficient and effective ransomware so we know it's getting paid uh, a lot of companies just aren't publicly stating it and when i work with some executive teams that seems to be one of the most contentious arguments we'll never pay let's be real they, they all pay. pay yeah <laughs> My experience has been in our clients is they all pay. Yeah, because if I suddenly take all your data offline right. or away from you, you're probably going to want it back. Right. So how do you coach companies on the front end of, you know, you can try to be strong and say you're not going to pay, but in your experience, everyone pays. Right. I think the key thing that you want to keep in mind is that if they really never want to pay ransomware, they're going to have to be incredibly confident that their backups are going to be solid and that they are really doing effective monitoring of logs for exfiltration of data because there's, there's the extortion right yeah. they ransom you and then they extort you because of the they've exfiltrated the data so it's all about monitoring and there are many cases where people will actually um, not be monitoring all of those logs and all the alarms don't get caught or paid attention to um, and so, therefore, these things sometimes slip through the cracks. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's the bottom line, is you have to make sure you have an effective backup process. 
But yes, everybody does pay. How, how does paying, though, protect your brand? To go back to what you said earlier. It doesn't. Well, well, it, it does unless it becomes public. And that's one of the things that we do in our, in our exercises is that we have to make it public because I need them to squirm about the feeling of having people talk about them. And I think what happens is that most ransoms are paid, never discussed. It's not mm -hmm. disclosed. If it's not public in any way, then they kind of just wipe their brow going, wow, that was expensive, but we didn't you know, screw up our reputation and our brand. And that's why in an exercise, you have to push that to make that happen. Because I want them to be uncomfortable and see what it would be really like. Makes them cry. And make them cry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my clients are probably thinking, oh, God, why did we hire that woman? Oh, my God. We, we all feel terrible. <laughs> so the other presentation you did yesterday, yesterday afternoon. So were you the first speaker and the last speaker? Yeah. So they just. How's that work for me, man? Wow. Okay. And being from San Francisco too, that must have just yeah. been wonderful. Yeah. Right. So you had a fun. So the session you did yesterday afternoon then was around. Yeah. So essentially, what I was is I looked at the um, kind of the impacts from the pandemic, and I was specifically asked by the conference to talk about essentially societal changes that the pandemic has, has caused and really focusing on the human aspects of that, but then also issues related to uh, the future of work. Okay. And so um, to prepare for that particular speech, I did, I read about seven books on the history of pandemics going back to 432 BC with the cholera outbreak in Athens. And there were some incredibly, um, I don't know if it's comforting or horrifying things I learned, but one of them is, is that what's happening societally around the world and not just in the United States, which you know where they were, we're crazier than probably some nations like the, my Northern friends up here, but um, that many of these things have occurred before. Yes. And so for example, uh, the spread, uh, the lack of uh, trust of government, the lack of trust of public health measures, uh, you know, the resistance of uh, distancing and, and bans on masking and issues related to vaccines go all the way back to 1770 with the uh, plagues that were occurring in Europe. Uh, things such as the, um, the uh, everybody believing that they're an expert. So this, you know, the incredible uh, belief that um, if I read it someplace, like, I don't know, Facebook. Yeah, then it's true. Then right? it's true. Yeah. And so there was a variety of societal things that are very, very consistent, including the spread of misinformation and disinformation. Even back in, you know, hundreds of years past, they didn't have Facebook or Twitter, but uh, they had other means of sharing that information. So that's, I think, is a big, that was a big aha for me anyway. And I've been doing pandemic planning for 27 years. So what are you seeing now? Now that you've been up here, you've probably heard some of the news of things that are happening up here. Uh, I mentioned to you earlier uh, that the <clears throat> hospital uh, not far from where I live in uh, Kitchener, Cambridge, uh, Waterloo, one of the, one of those cities, uh, was operating at 150% mm -hmm. because outbreaks of flu, mm -hmm. COVID, and RSV, and, RSV and kids. Mm -hmm. So what are, you, what are you seeing and what are you seeing in the future mm -hmm. right now? Yeah, so right now it's going to be a tough winter. I'll just tell you that straight away. Um, mm -hmm. It's going to be a really tough winter. And we were very prescient in our talk last month. We talked a lot about RSV and influenza. In the States, the same thing is occurring. Hospitals are really overwhelmed with children, yeah. really ill. Some large hospitals, large children hospitals, are already building tent hospitals in the parking lot 
because they have overran their bed capacity. So it's going to be a very tough winter. As far as RSV and influenza, same thing. Influenza, if you look at the uh, CDC map in the United States for Flu Weekly, if you don't know that site, you should go to it. Uh, it's already where 50% of the country is already in severe flu. So then you put COVID on top of that. And we have a whole cascade of new variants, as you well know, from BA5, which is the original Omicron. And there's one now that's actually blazing through Canada and the United States, which is BQ.1.1. How do you like that for that? I've never been able to keep all those. I know. It's, I, I can only remember so many of them at one time. But anyway, yeah, it's going to be a very tough winter. Now, as whether that it results in a lot of deaths uh, or hospitalizations on the COVID side is yet to be seen. However, the good news is, is that the Pfizer and Moderna bivalent vaccines are effective against the BQ 1.1.1. <laughs> <laughs> So that, if you haven't gotten a bivalent vaccine, you might want to. Well, I've, I've got four. I've got uh, all the ones I'm eligible do you have the bi- Do you have the bivalent stuff here now, Ken? I'm not sure, to be honest. Uh, I can't say that with 100% assurance. I know I had the latest best that I could get, because that's exactly what my pharmacist right. was doing. It told me that this is the latest and greatest that you can get. So, so if that's it, then yes, I have it. When did you get it? Uh would be two months ago. Uh, might not be. <laughs> might not be. Well, if the fifth one comes up, I'll be getting it. <laughs> the last booster was in August, so you and I might be out of date now. Yeah, you actually should so, be looking at the bivalent. Okay. I, I would recommend that. Shot. Good, good, good. Make sure I got that. I, I got counsel him all time. the time. Good. <laughs> so what other things are you seeing? Could be um, your lessons learned. What other things... Maybe that we've learned, but we're not doing anything about. Oh well, that's a long. That could be a long story. But I think the 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 issues related to um, I think that we should be thinking about professionally are issues related to the impact of the workforce. Just looking at the illness for a moment and looking at long COVID. Uh, long COVID is a significant health mm. issue across the world. In the United States, we've just had a staffing shortage in a variety of professions over the last two years. Um, about a half a million people in the U.S. are off work today because of long COVID. That is a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And yeah. so um, I think when you think about our continuity plans, I mean, the idea that you actually, I mean, what are some of the most critical people in your company all of a sudden they fall ill to something like long COVID and they can't work? And so I always ask my clients, you know, if you have anybody in your business, like in technology or other key departments, and you feel like you have to bubble wrap every night before you send them home, uh, you might want to look at those kinds of roles and then really look at your SOPs and look at your continuity plans to ensure that you actually have adequate coverage. Because don't assume that those people are going to be able to... Is that where things like succession planning and cross-training and all job of that. shadowing and all those kinds all of those things? And, and that's uh, currently a big part of, of course, what we do for a living, right? Mm-hmm. And it's also another value that you can provide because we've talked a lot about value. value I'm not an, yeah, that's right. I'm not an ROI person. I'm a VOI person. And uh, I think that's one of the key things to look at. So I think that's an important piece. So you speak and travel at a lot of conferences, obviously. And there was a two-year period where 
none of us, there were no conferences. So what's it like, we've been asking everyone, what's it been like for you this year, getting back into the swing of in-person conferences and traveling to different conferences? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. So normally, prior to the pandemic, I would fly about 200,000 miles a year and probably go to four continents out of uh, five that we work in. And um, I have to say, I shouldn't say this out loud, but I actually have to say that it's been really nice. <laughs> that goes against everything you've told me over the last two and a half years. <laughs> Not to travel so much. Um, so what I've appreciated, I think it's been fun to be in conferences. It's fun to see people. Uh, and I've, I've enjoyed that. But what I've also enjoyed, which is really odd, I'm, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, is that after doing so many exercises in my life, I was one of those believers that you had to be in the room to actually make it happen. But I have changed my attitude about that completely and really for several reasons is that you can we've actually perfected the virtual exercise i've done over 200 of those since the pandemic began in march of 2020 and they they can be much better i think than actually a regular exercise in the room and part of that is if you think about how people are going to run events they're going to run them a lot in the virtual space and maybe it'll be hybrid but there'll be a lot of people virtually and so I, what I think that's been, for me, has been really great is to see this opportunity that, that people could be much more effective in that space, which we wouldn't have done if there hadn't been right. a pandemic. So for those of our colleagues who now run virtual exercises, without giving away everything you do, of course, are there like one or two things you can share with our audience yeah, that they sure. should be doing to do more effective yes. uh, virtual exercises? Outside of making people cry. Outside of <laughs> Well, one, hire Regina. Two, she'll make your management cry. But then, yeah, but then beside that, yeah, 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 you could share. Yeah, yeah. There's several things I could share. So I think what I would say is that when you're looking at a virtual exercise, it's it's very structured. It's way more structured than an in-person experience. You know, an in-person experience, you know, you might have a a schedule that you're going to keep to. But if it's five minutes here or five minutes there, it's because you're all in the room. It doesn't matter, right? But when you're actually doing it virtually. We, first of all, build a very what we call detailed AV agenda, which basically has every little step along the way, who's showing video, who's showing slides, how it works, what the breakout rooms are, what the timestamps are, and we usually have that very scripted. So that's the first thing is you need to nail it and you need to stay to it. Secondly, I think the other thing is really important that's tied to that is that we always make sure that we have a AV producer or a Zoom producer. So um, you as the, as the facilitator of an exercise should not be at all um, worried about, gosh, you know, what happened? Somebody came in the main room. You know what? No, that's not your job. Your job is to make sure that you have a very skilled person who knows all the insides and outs of Teams or Zoom or whatever you're using and that they basically are monitoring where people are going. They're dropping in messages for us on the broadcast function. And they're taking care of all of that. So Some those good are, advice we could have used yesterday. We, we, we could have used that. Where were you yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I can't wait to hear about yesterday. <laughs> it was an experience. Oh, yeah, <laughs> this yeah. This started it. This started it. Yeah, yeah. So those are, to me, those are the two most critical things. And then the other thing I say is a third thing that I, I think is really important is that you want to make sure that when you are actually doing a virtual exercise, that a few days before the event, 
you send out to all the participants or your my client sends out uh, like a one-page document about how the game is going to be played so that people understand we're going to be in a main room, we're going to go to a breakout room, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And so they can actually kind of get their head in the game before they show up. You must have also in all of those breakout rooms, you must have observers, you must have scribes, there has to be a designated leader, all of that stuff, you know, just to make sure that it's tight. And then what I do is I wander around the whole time. So once we go to breakout rooms, you're going to see me bouncing in and out of every room. Nice. I, I just thought of something because um, a couple of weeks ago, there was an exercise held with uh, a cyber exercise mm. held with the executive of the company I'm working with. And they were asked questions about the cyber event. There were no crisis management people, business continuity people, nobody else there, just the executive. Mm -hmm. Then there was a second exercise and it was all the business continuity crisis management people, yep. no executives. They did the wrong suggest, order. How do you suggest bringing those together? Yep. Because okay. they were both dealing with different assumptions, right. throwing, you know, right. oh, that goes here, that goes here. And so, the two just were going in different directions. Yeah, it's, that was a bad design. Yeah. <clears throat> so They cried for the wrong reason. <laughs> yeah. Right. So. so the design would be as this. If we were doing that, we would always, first of all, I would, I, I, I would want to know what the previous history of the, uh, their exercise experience was, you know, and, and how trained are the executives? Do the executives really understand and know their role, et cetera? And the same thing for the tactical team below them. Then what I would very likely do is if I was going to have them as separate events, the first exercise would be for the tactical team below them because all the issues that they're going to develop and, and essentially cascade up are going to happen in that exercise. Then you can take those and then actually deliver them to the executive team. Yeah. If you're going to do them on the same day, which we do a lot of, then what I do is I actually then will plot out, let's say it's a four-hour block of time. Um, there'll be about two and a half hours of play time in there, maybe close to three. Then essentially what I would do is in the first part of that exercise, we would have them run for like probably an hour. And then there'd be like about a 10-minute section or a 15-minute section where you would give a briefing to the executives in real time and then they disconnect and then you continue the exercise and then there's another executive briefing at that end so the advantage about that is that then the real executives are talking to the real players right yeah interesting and when i do that then uh but i will say that i never do that unless i know that my tactical team below the executives is comfortable in their role like kind of i i don't want them to look bad right yeah and so I want to make sure that they are, are in, in the position where when they do the briefing, they're going to be grounded. Uh, that doesn't mean they know all the answers, but they're going to be grounded. They're not so, the ones you want to make cry. Right. No, <laughs> right. Right. I want never, to, uh, never make the client cry. Right. Right. So there's a progressive thing. I mean, if you actually are developing a crisis management process, if you have that kind of progressive set of exercises, ultimately, in our clients that we've worked for for years, whenever we do an exercise, there's always executive briefings, and it's the real executives. And they, the executives, for me, get a little document in advance that says kind of what the, what the issue is. Because they would know, of course, before the first briefing that something was up. So I don't want them to be flat-footed. And then we essentially, they do those briefings. And it's really good training for the executives. And it's really good training for the tactical team below them. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. Uh, we're almost at time. So can I close with uh, Regina Phelps' famous story? 
Oh, no. Would you like to hear Regina's famous story? What's the famous story? No, I've never shared it before. I'm going to share it right now. <laughs> oh, oh. Okay, do I? Now, this is actually Is this where I joke. do this? This is no, where I go this like is, this? this is not a bit. Uh, Pre-COVID, you know, years and years ago, back in the calm days, I was speaking at a small risk event in New Zealand. And obviously, it's very obvious that I'm an American. I look like an American. I talk like an American. There's no secret. And so somebody asked me, they're like, oh, do you know Regina Phelps? And I said, yeah, I, you know, I, I know. Like, we don't, we don't hang out and drink together, but she's, I know her. And they're like, you know Regina? And this person was smitten. And I couldn't help but think I'm on the other side of the world. And your fan base, so you have a global audience. I've never shared that story. True story. I'm blushing. You have a huge fan base in uh, mm-hmm. New Zealand. They love you there. So apparently you don't make them cry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, we were going to ask you one thing. Yeah. Because you were making faces of us at off us camera. off camera. Will you make funny faces on camera? There we go. Uh, <laughs> you did it. And she did it. See? <laughs> I didn't think that was going to happen. But it really did. I didn't think so either. Yeah, see, once you start that, you got to go with it, man. Exactly. So, Regina, for those of us not in New Zealand, mm. want to know where, what's the best way to contact you or to find find you online out in the out in the, the Ethernet. Yeah. So you can either go to LinkedIn and search my name, or you can just type in a Google search Regina Phelps, and you're going to find me on the first twenty pages. Okay, first twenty yep. pages, easy enough. And, and uh, I actually even have a, for, for the unexpected, Regina has her own, and so does James, actually, their Same. own. Uh, we have a sub channel underneath channel yours? underneath, yeah. We're just all okay, James well then, just follow this guy and you're going to find me, right? <laughs> yeah. Regina, thank you so much for joining us. As always. It's so good to, to uh, <laughs> see you in person. Yeah, ditto. And, uh, after years now of chatting online. Ditto. It's so great to have you here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, thank you for being here. Thanks, James. Thanks, Regina. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.